This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with stars. and higher, filling it with songs. filling it with songs. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guest is Elizabeth Blair. She's a poet, editor, and educator with an extensive background in music and the visual arts. She's been artist-in-residence at the Atlantic Center for the Arts, the Kimmel-Harding Nelson Center for the Arts, Wild Acres and Acre, or A-C-R-E. She's the author of We, He, She, It, and Without Saying. And her most recent book that we'll be talking about is Because God Loves the Wasp, a book that documents her experience of living for two and a half years in two abusive facilities for so-called troubled teens, Ascent and the Rocky Mountain Foundation, both of which are part of the CEDU family of services, which operated from 1967 to 2005. CEDU's programs were based on the harmful teachings and tenets of the mid-century cult Synanon. At the time this book went to press, offshoots of CEDU, as well as many similar programs, continue to operate in the U.S. and abroad, largely unregulated, as well as a uh, workshop that she'll be doing in our neck of the woods here later this month. So, Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. While I was reading this book, it occurred to me that this could really happen to any kid if they had the right or wrong combination of parents, circumstances, and timing. And as a teenager, if I had had different parents or a different father, I could have ended up in such a place as well. Yeah, it really is. And um, it's definitely these programs are usually catered to families with more money. Um, I say cater to, prey on, prey on families with more money. But uh, there were certainly kids there that had been sent by the court as well. Um, There were kids on scholarship. And there are all kinds of programs for all kinds of families still in operation, even though the ones that I went to, that company is now out of business. But there are plenty of similar programs in operation right now. So it seems like these programs are catering to parents who want to get their kids out of their hair, so to speak, who don't want to have to deal with them, and also are being told by psychiatrists or doctors that they should get some kind of 
help? Yeah, it depends. There's certainly parents that just want their kids out of their hair. I mean, in my book, I allude to kids that were there because they did something. They did some minor transgression, like smoked a single cigarette. And their parents, you know, flipped out and, and decided to send them to this expensive reform school, basically. But there were also kids who were going through normal teen problems. Um, I was a sort of more of that category. I had depression. I did some self-injury and I was non-communicative with my parents. And when they sent me to a psychiatrist, I refused to talk to him. I just sat on his couch and all of that contributed to why they sent me away. And then there were also kids who were really having serious issues living on the streets, addicted to serious drugs, things like that. So they ran the gamut, but I would say most kids that were sent there were doing normal teen stuff. You know, they were smoking pot, they were disobeying their parents, they were staying out late, they were having premarital sex, things like that. And these facilities really prey on parents' fears. The thing that they most frequently tell parents early on in their materials, their websites, their videos, whatever, is if you don't send your child to us, your child will die. I mean, they really, really go to that extreme of like, we're the only ones who can save you and save your child. And so really, in a lot of these instances, parents are victims too. And then once the child's at the facility, their communications are so severely limited that it's pretty much impossible to tell parents what's actually happening. They censor all letters and you're allowed a phone call maybe once every two weeks and it's monitored and it's only 15 minutes and things like that. So it's definitely using the word prison is pretty Pretty similar, although prisoners get more rights than these teenagers get in these facilities. Prisoners have rights to lawyer. Prisoners can call, you know, there's organizations out there to help prisoners. Prisoners can make phone calls, you know, in a lot of instances, whereas these youths can't access the external world. They're completely cut off. And there's no way to report the abuses. There's no access to communication methods to report anything. And it's kind of interesting how children to a large degree, don't have any rights in our society. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, unless you get yourself emancipated, which is very rare, you are at the whims and whimsy of these, you know, whoever's in charge of your life, um, and they can they can put you away. There were kids there who got cu- extended custody. That was everybody's absolute horror, was that their parents were going to get extended custody, which means that they would have control of your life even after you turned 18. And I've read accounts of many kids who stayed in programs much longer than than 18, the age of majority. So this book, Because God Loves the Wasp, is a kind of poetic journey through your experience through all of this. Are there any parts of this book that you would like to read? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to read. So um, one of the primary ways these programs get children out to their location, because they're usually set in some remote place in Montana, Idaho, Utah, is uh, they convince parents to hire what are called escorts. These are usually people whose normal living is made as a bounty hunter, trying to search for escaped prisoners or people missing bail or things like that. And this is a gig for them to go to a child's house in the middle of the night wake them up and take them out of their room with handcuffs. So it's quite traumatizing. And so the first pages of my book, so my book is a memoir, but I approached the memoir form via poetry because for me it was more, 
bearable. Writing about something in straightforward prose is in a way harder than couching it in metaphor and things like that. Um, poetic devices are easier for me to speak about or write about difficult topics. So I'll read the first couple pages. They're very short, each page, describing the moment when I was woken up from my bed at about 4 or 5 a.m. by a man and a woman in my room. Your blanket is the shell of an egg. You, young, raw, you're standing on it. The man with the handcuffs is generous. He gives you time. He helps. Gets oxygen to your brain, makes your breast heave. A bird on a stoop on its back in shock. Get in the man's truck. A bone tucked in weeds, you breathe through hair. A bean, you're obedient, plucked from the pod, shapely on the plate. Soon, you'll deliver your babies, your voice, your testimony, into their fields, then watch them be plowed under from the shelter of a ditch. They'll pay you in nightmares for as long as you live. It's helpful. It's love. You'll see when you're older, if you make it. For now, darkness, child locks. So that goes on for a few pages to describe how I was received. Those are the first two pages of the book. So it sounds like you were completely blindsided by this. And I mean, just the way that you wrote that, that it just seems like you were going through some incomprehensible experience. It really was totally incomprehensible. I mean, you know, there was a lot of things I had to cut out of the book, but there's this scene in, in Back to the Future, the movie, where Marty McFly is getting taken away by some thugs. I remember there's this moment where he says, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. And then he hits him over the head and then he says, the easy way. And you can hear it as the screen goes dark, as Marty's getting knocked unconscious. And that actually happened. I mean, they didn't hit me over the head, literally. But, you know, there's some sarcasm in those first pages when I say he helps, he gives you time. It was the small mercy of when they woke me up, I stood up on top of my bed and I just looked at them and tried to get it through my head. And it really took a full five minutes for me to even get my head around, like, what could be beginning to be happening. And then at that point, he held up those handcuffs and he, he said, quite literally, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. So I chose to do it the actual easy way. I did not get handcuffed. I was definitely always looking for a way to run, but there was no opportunity and I had nothing on me. I would have been completely helpless in the world, even if I had made it. So were you living with your parents at that time? Yeah, in Michigan. And you knew or you had a sense that they were involved in this? Yeah, my dad actually nudged me awake. The people were already in my room. He nudged me awake and said I was going to a wilderness camp. And then he left. 
and I didn't see them after that. They both stayed out of the way and it was completely me and this man and woman. So you really had no idea of the the kind of horror that you were going to be pulled into. No, I, I didn't. And to be fair, neither did my parents. And, you know, this was 1997. Websites were just getting going. I mean, they sent my parents. Um, the journalist Maya Zalovitz has written a fantastic book. I think it was published in 2006 on the troubled teen industry. And she really highlighted the system within which people are making money on this. What happens is therapists, social workers, psychiatrists get kickbacks from these troubled teen industry facilities and these companies. If they recommend a child to their program and the parents take them up on it, they get an actual kickback. She found proof of this money. They get paid. So, you know, this person who I had refused to speak to advised my parents to send me to this place. My parents send away for the brochure and the video. And it was also beautiful. It was like nature and all this crap. And they took the advice of the therapist who I had not even spoken to, you know. And so the whole thing is pretty crooked. So, I mean, right up front, if anyone's listening, like, just do your research. These days, there's less of an excuse for ignorance. There's a lot of testimony out there. There's still those beautiful videos. There's still those schmarmy websites. And there's still the threats that your child will die if you don't send it to their program. But now you can also look up survivor testimonies from the actual facility that you're considering. So, yeah. So I had no idea. To get back to your question, I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, it was supposed to just be some sort of a, I don't know, wilderness camp is what my dad described it. Some place I was supposed to get shocked awake or something out of my teenage place that I was in, teenage moodiness. Yeah, to me, it seems incomprehensible that parents would give up on their children in that sort of a way, that they would put them, put their children in the hands of, of institutions and these kind of people. But then again, I grew up not trusting any of those kind of things and never trusted medical doctors. So it's particularly incomprehensible for me and hard for me to imagine that parents could buy into that and just blindly, you know, put their kids into the hands of strangers, essentially. I agree. I agree. I had a decision to make when I was writing this book. There's a lot of ways that for, with any memoir, you have to make decisions about where you start and where you where you finish. Where does the story begin? Where does it end? You know, because these things, life is not it's not divided up into chapters. So and I had I had a choice about the framing of it as well. And my approach was to be angry and blame and showcase and highlight the people who actually did know what was going on. I mean, my parents don't really figure into the book very much. There's a couple mentions of them. Obviously, it is their fault. They sent me there. They made that decision. But I can forgive them that at this point, at least in part because they didn't know any better. And I cannot forgive the adults that knew what they were doing and who worked in these facilities and who abused us. I cannot forgive them. I cannot forgive the psychiatrists and therapists who continue to place children in these institutions and um, get rewarded for it. I cannot forgive the corporate jerks who run these companies and these programs and institutions. So I really personally try to focus on who I feel is the true villain here. It's not the parents. The parents 
are feeling a lot of feelings and are frightened and whatever. I mean, there's certainly all, there's a range. There's a huge range of, of parents. Many kids who were there had very, very abusive parents. Basically, I just made the choice to put aside the issues with my parents and focus on the program itself and the, and the adults, the grown, grown adults who choose to make their livings doing harm. What was going on in your life at the time leading up to your getting taken away that led your parents to, to think that you needed this kind of help? Well, um, my mother and I butted heads from an early age. We both had very fiery and independent personalities, which doesn't really work well together. And I've never done well in a hierarchical situation where someone's in charge of me. <laughs> I've never done well with that. And so we didn't have a very good relationship. And my parents are in their 80s now. They were born during World War II and they have conservative values and they have expectations that that I blew out of the water. They, they didn't expect me to be such a teenager. And I was, I, I actually was a pretty good kid. I didn't do drugs, but I lied about doing drugs because I wanted to fit in. So, you know, they had found letters I'd written to friends saying that I'd been doing drugs, but I hadn't been. <laughs> so there's where my bragging got me in trouble. And uh, I had had sex, which was a pretty big sin. And they found out. And then um, I had moved and the new place that I was living really depressed me. I missed my old friends. And so I fell into quite the depression. I didn't really talk a whole lot to them. Um, I wasn't really communicating. Like I said, I refused to talk to the therapist and they drew their own conclusions. They thought that I was doing drugs. They thought that I was wasting away. They thought I was going to die. And they thought that I was out of control because I had sex. I mean, this is all my interpretation of it, but also when you get sent away, they give you a letter called an issues letter. It's a terrible letter where your parents write down all the reasons you've been sent away and you get to read that. And these are all the reasons included. So it was a, a dreadful situation, but I really wasn't doing that badly. I just didn't have anyone to talk to and they didn't know how to talk to me and they didn't know how to understand me. I mean, by the time I was 12, they were 50 and I'm not knocking older parents at all, but I think there was just a huge generation gap there of not really understanding a 90s child, you know, exploring sex and, you know, listening to Megadeth, you know, or, you know, my mom thought that I was, uh, she, she had a lot of problems with the music and black t-shirts and things like that. So it was a big, big gap in values, big gap in generation and a big gap in communications between me and my family. And I didn't really have anybody else to talk to. And they're pretty private. So they didn't really have a whole lot to turn to. Yeah, I can sort of understand that they were probably really scared of the situation and, and afraid of what could become of you, so to speak. Yeah, especially because before me, I have one sister, an older sister, and she had been the most obedient child you could possibly wish for, <laughs> you know, almost over obedient. And then along I came with my own mind and risk taking and things like that. So yeah, they were scared. So once you were at one of these places, what was your experience like there? What, what was life like and where did you begin? Well, after flying all day with these people, um, we landed somewhere. I didn't actually know where. 
but it was actually Spokane, Washington. And then we drove in a truck all the way into northern Idaho to a mountain north of Bonners Ferry, Idaho, which is about a couple hours north of Coeur d'Alene, where Ascent was. Ascent was the name of the six-week boot camp, wilderness boot camp program that they had sent me to. And originally, that was all they were going to do. But of course, um, these programs always have, what do you call it in sales, you know, when they have something else to sell you. Once you buy the the starter kit, they have the next thing you really just have to get. And so it became very clear soon after I was at this six-week program that they were going to send me to an affiliated he was also part of the same company and affiliated two and a half year program, which was devastating for me. But the first place that they sent me to was in the middle of nowhere. It was eight miles down the mountain if you ran away. And it was March in the mountains. So you really didn't have a chance of running away. Eight miles down the mountain to the nearest tiny town. And the police there, I've heard lots of stories of kids who managed to run away in one way or the other from one of these facilities and get picked up by the police and taken right back to the program. So. It was pretty hopeless and you get strip searched. It was probably about 2 a.m. and I was strip searched. There's actually a poem I can read about my arrival. Yeah, please do. So it picks up actually where I left off and the last time I was reading. Wheeled up switchbacks, you are fixed. An insect in sap. Now you're pulled out into a plywood room. A woman confiscates your clothes. A little curtain, that's nice. The men won't see your breasts and ass, or wouldn't, but the woman stands where it should be drawn, an insufficient human curtain. She asks if you've ever cut yourself, demands you show her where. She knows what you are. She's seen things like you before. At 2 a.m., you're mixed into a spread of sleeping girls. Lie down. Avert your eyes. You are not to look anywhere but the furrows where the fetuses are. And those fetuses refer to the lines earlier in the book where I said, soon you'll deliver your babies, your voice and testimony into their fields, then watch them be plowed under. So it's just this idea that the only thing you can look at really in your soul is is how your voice has been completely shut, how everything is gone at this point. You have no power. You have no voice. You have nothing. They take away everything, all of your clothes. They issue you new clothes. I mean, I traveled with nothing except the clothes I was wearing. I didn't get to take anything. Even my chapstick. I had chapstick in my pocket, and they took that. They took everything. So it's definitely this sense of their their whole philosophy is to sort of shock you and do this sort of... um, you know, scare you straight sort of type of thing, you know, uh, tough love, which is just devastating, especially when you've just been virtually kidnapped and you don't know where you are and you're exhausted. And then they stuck me in uh, the spread of girls I mentioned in the poem is a, a teepee. There were two teepees, one for boys and one for girls. And we slept on the ground in the teepee in an issued sleeping bag. And I just, I just had no idea what was happening. And then in the morning when I woke up, um, each morning they woke us up with a scream. They just said five minutes in this long screamed out drone. And once you heard that, you were supposed to do a number of things. But of course, they hadn't told me 
any of the things I was supposed to do. I had no idea what was going on. And because I had no idea what was going on that first morning and I was crying and I wasn't doing the many, many things, you know, there were all these things you had to clean up your area, stuff your sleeping bag. I'd never stuffed a sleeping bag. I'd never even been camping in my life. You had to have your clothes arranged in a certain way, your buttons done up. You had to stand in a certain way, toe to toe, heel to heel. You had to not look at anyone in the eye. You had to circle up. You had to sweep out your, you know, there was just this whole set of things you had to do. And nobody had told me what to do. And none of the children were allowed to talk. So I couldn't ask. And every time that I spoke and every time that I failed to do something, the entire camp was punished in a group punishment so that we spent hours doing these group punishments. And every time I sobbed and every time I couldn't get up from the table because I was crying so hard or whatever, there was just more group punishments, more shouting, more swearing. I mean, they were they were vicious, the staff. And uh, it took hours. But finally, I I caught on to the fact that the only way to get by was to blindly follow and ask no questions and don't cry and don't express yourself and don't look at anyone. So I have a poem that um, there's a lot of grayed out words in my book, which are harder to read out loud, but they're sort of, it sort of illustrates there's like the normal black text in the poems, just normal black colored text. And then behind it and around it are their shouting and their expectations all in gray. So I'm just going to read the black text because I sort of described the gray just now to you. You wake to hear the staff shout, five minutes and you're meant to leap up stuff sleeping bag duffel dress yourself in agreement the right order of layers buttons laces zippers up rain gear on tightly drawn black back hair make all plumb and square sweep out to make a circle heel to heel toe to toe be silent eyes down and do all of this in five minutes but no one's told you this you don't even know which state this is your questions are fungus on a dead thing your being good is not in the plan you break their agreements. You can't not. What's wrong with her? A girl whispers. Her transgression speech is less. She's safe while you're the spectacle with your snot and gasps. It doesn't take them long. One hour and you've been taught. Yourself must be put down by either their or your hands. Mercy killed or at least made to play dead. Wow. Again, incomprehensible. It almost makes the military seem like a picnic. Although it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. There was a military guy there who ran the, we called it PT, um, physical training that we had to do every morning before breakfast. And he definitely ran it like I would imagine it's run at boot camp. I don't know. I've never been. But we weren't allowed to have breakfast until we'd done several hours of this training. And however he deemed our training to have been determined what kind of breakfast we got. So if we had performed poorly, we got water and oats. And if we had performed well, maybe we got some butter and if we had performed even better, maybe we got some milk in the oatmeal. And then, you know, on the rare occasion, he thought we'd done really well. We got some sugar. So there was definitely, yeah. So he added the military aspect to it. But the thing about it is, is what everyone needs to remember is that 
we were children. We had not chosen to be there. People who are in the military often, not always, choose to be there. They're adults and they've made a choice. Now, that definitely isn't, isn't always a choice that they could help making. A lot of times, lower income, less opportunities, it might be the only route. Or if there's a war on, obviously, you get conscripted, but we didn't have a choice. You know, and, and the cult that all these programs are based on, the mid-century cult you mentioned in the introduction, Synanon, the people who were in the cult were adults. They joined by choice. And so it was really the decision made by adults sometime in the 70s to turn this around and make it a moneymaker off of people who can't possibly defend themselves and who don't have a choice, and that is minors, children. Yeah, again, it seems so incomprehensible that people could treat children that way. But I've heard so many of these kind of horror stories in my life that, that yeah, I, I am pretty well aware of that, unfortunately. Um, there's a series of what you call new truths in the book. Could you talk about them and begin by reading the first one on page seven? which refers to the title of the book? Yeah. So the way the book's arranged is most of the poems don't have titles. They just kind of blend into each other. Each page is a new poem and the first letter is bolded. But the book is really one single poem. But some of the poems, as you mentioned, have titles, including these new truths. And the new truths, I think there's four or five of them throughout the book. They sort of embody the falling away of innocence and the moments where I realized reality. You know, at, at 16, you're still a child in many ways. And you still have childlike expectations of the world or hopes or optimisms or whatever. You know, despite my depression, I might have thought, well, I certainly never thought this would happen. So, you know, I think every child when they go through trauma has to go through those moments of waking up to a new truth. Um, so the first new truth is this. Because God loves the wasp, he causes the pear to fall and meet its lover. God does not mind the suffering of the girl who, with a bite, interrupts the lover's tryst. Because in the end, he just loves the wasp most. So wasps love pears, if anyone's not aware of it. If you ever walk past a pear tree with the pears on the ground rotting, they'll be just swarmed with wasps. So in my head, it was this idea of a, of a girl picking up one of these pears and trying to bite into it, but biting into the wasp. The lover's tryst is the wasp with the pear. And it's just a very, I guess, picturesque way of saying that God, if there is a God, favors cruelty, favors unfairness, favors injustice. And that just because you're a sweet young girl isn't going to protect you. You're not going to be, you're not going to be kept safe. You're not going to be set aside for a special treatment. So it's that, it's that moment of realizing that, that I was unsafe and that I wasn't special and that no one was, was watching out for me and that I was alone and that, you know, the universe or God or the world of adults, all of that was letting this happen and, and, and allowing this to happen to me. That's stunning, stunning that a child could be, you know, have that kind of a, a worldview 
pressed upon them in that way. So on page 22, there's the second new truth or new truth number two, in which you say, I was 16, am now 36, am only ever surprised by kindness. Yeah. I think anyone who has experienced cruelty and abuse and trauma, especially long-term, especially institutional or from their family, will know what I mean in that poem. I think it's, it's this fundamental, I am not, I'm not ever surprised when someone's a jerk. I'm not ever surprised. You know, I've dated a lot of abusive partners and they never surprised me. Their abuses never surprised me. What continues to surprise me is my current partner I've been with for six years now, who's just continually, continually gentle and accepting and kind. And I, I continue to be surprised. I continue to be surprised. I just, I don't expect it. I don't expect anything of institutions. I don't expect anything of authority figures. I don't expect anything of lovers. I I just don't. My expectations are in the garbage bin <laughs> because I understand how people are. And anybody who's, you know, anybody who's seen this side of humanity knows what I mean. And so, yeah, it's definitely, it's made me cynical. And I tend to cry the most when I'm, when I'm the subject of kindness or generosity or someone going out of their way. It's always shocking to me. It's shocking. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about, like, after all these years, how that experience has informed your sense of who or what you are, as well as your art. And that's a very broad yeah. question, I know, but uh, take it wherever ever you will. Yeah. Well, my escape from it, I mean, I didn't actually escape. I stayed through the whole program, but my escape from it afterwards, um, I totally left it behind. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't really talk about it. I mean, we were actually sworn to silence at this institution. We were told no one would ever understand. And so we were sworn to a lifetime of silence and we had to do this whole ceremony around it and shit, which is very cult-like. And for years, I kept that promise. I mean, I remember one of the first times I told somebody the kinds of things that happened at that place. I almost felt like a child stealing from the corner store. Like it felt terribly dangerous and scary and thrilling to actually tell someone. So I was able to get away. I was able to, you know, one of the important things I need to underline, and I did say this at the beginning, is that these institutions tend to not solely, but mostly cater to families with more money. So this is a very first world problem. This doesn't make it any better, but certainly there are traumas and, and horrors that I, you know, I, I, I basically am not trying to compete with anyone's traumas or horrors, but this is a rich person's trauma. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not currently rich, but my family has some money. And, and part of that, to get back to your question of, of how it's affected the development of who I am. Part of that meant that I was able to get the heck away. I was able to really escape. So I, I was in Northern Idaho for two and a half years. And then once I left, my parents were perfectly happy to pay for me to go to college abroad. It's funny, the moment the plane, so I went to college in London, England um, for all the four years. And 
you know, that was a huge privilege, an absolutely huge privilege that, you know, my parents, well, let's just leave them out of it. But like, I, I had that opportunity to physically leave, not just the state, but the country where this had happened to me. And I ended up when the plane landed in England, feeling safe, I could feel safe. I didn't feel like someone was going to come and get me in the night. I was across an ocean. I was in a country with different laws. I was an adult. So there was this blossoming that I that I was allowed to happen. I didn't have to stay close to all that. I, I had this blessing and this privilege of being able to get the heck away and really think about who I was and who I wanted to be away, like physically away from all of that. And I had the blessing of being able to study art and sort of develop my expressive side. And I think honestly... As an artist, it's been one of the things that saved my life because a huge percentage of the kids that I was at these facilities with have died. I'm 42 now. A huge percentage of them died in their 20s, more died in our 30s. I mean, the group that I went through the program with of 18 kids, um, three or four of them died early deaths. And you can look at that two different ways. You can look at that, oh, well, that's why they got sent away. They were on this destructive path. and that's why they they died. But I would argue that really that this place traumatized people so much that whatever path they were on beforehand, by the time they got through with this program, they were they doubled down on that difficult path. They had even fewer resources and even fewer stability inside themselves. And I think that art is the way that I was able to stabilize myself. Art and that distance and once I once I finished college, I moved to Chicago and became a singer-songwriter, and I was doing that for years. And just being able to be in these in these world cities and being able to make my own way and be able to express myself. I mean, I worked day jobs and at night would be on this performance circuit. And, you know, all of that has been a huge blessing. I was able to express so many things that didn't have to lay dormant inside me and, and fester. And so to that to my creativity and to my ability to do the creative stuff and my and my privilege of being able to devote some time in my life to create to that I credit my sense of self-development and my healing to be honest and then finally after 20 years had passed I was able to sit down and start writing out the story um the publication process took quite quite a number of years so now I'm 42 even though in that poem I was 36 but I was finally able to write it out. And that that was very healing as well. Not during the writing. During the writing was quite traumatizing. I was re-traumatized. I had, I've always suffered from nightmares since this program, repeated nightmares, and they amped up quite a lot during the writing of the book. But since I've written the book, my nightmares have almost disappeared, which is remarkable. So again, it's that, it's that expulsion. It's that, uh, what do you call it when you get a ghost out of your house with a priest. <laughs> I always forget that word. An exorcism. An exorcism. Yes. For me, my writing, my art, and my music has been my way of continually exercising these demons. And so, yeah, I think that might come a little way toward answering your question. So as you were pursuing your art, particularly in the earlier years, how did that healing process unfold through your art? 
Well, in the early years, I was absolutely unwilling to directly come at it. I didn't want to talk about it. Um, I had mentioned it briefly to my advisor. Um, I did a degree in, in photography and media arts, and she kept pushing me. She's like, you should make work about that strange place you went to. She didn't know much about it. And I just remember being in her office saying, absolutely effing not. No, no, I don't want to even think about it, you know, let alone make work about it. So it, it was it was not directly. but it didn't have to be directly. I was able to to make work about the trauma, really. I mean, I did a lot of self-portraits and there was a lot of work that I made around, around identity and trying to figure out who I was and trying to grow out and away from who they had told me I was and what the messages had been, you know, and trying to create a new self, a self separate from the program, a self separate from my parents. So there was just in the beginning, in the early years, just so much healing and photography and music around my selfhood and around being an artist, being a person and struggling with a lot of terrible feelings, struggling with the nightmares, struggling with, um, I kept journals of all the nightmares, which ended up in this book, actually, the whole last third of the book are a sampling of the nightmares that I've actually had. And a lot of the way that I was able to write that section was that in those early years, I kept meticulous diaries of all the nightmares which is a form of therapy in itself, just to write all that out. And so, yeah, so it was, it was through writing, it was through photography, and it was through developing a sense of myself in those early years. So in art, there's talk about how trauma and pain is a kind of fuel for art. From your perspective, and also from your being part of the artist community, how important or how how integral to art is trauma and pain, would you say? Man, that's such a good question. When I was a singer-songwriter for years on the Chicago circuit, we had, you know, running jokes about how if you get in a good relationship, your songwriting's gonna dry up. <laughs> you know, like this idea that happiness was bad for business. Because you kind of do sometimes end up feeling like, especially as a songwriter, I would feel like a transformation machine, like in goes pain, out comes pretty song. And so speaking very bluntly, unfortunately, trauma and pain are very, they're, they're very closely connected to creating and to expression and to creating beautiful works of art. I mean, you know, some of the most incredible works of art and songs that I can think of were created based on suffering and trauma and pain. Uh, the first thing that comes to my head is the incredible song, Strange Fruit. Mm. Yeah. Which is written in response to lynchings of people of color. So it's, it's a sad truth that suffering, I mean, and there's the, the whole idea that, you know, the 27 Club, that all these incredible great songwriters, you know, die at 27, got Kurt Cobain and all these other people. They're in so much pain and they're, you know, self-medicating with all these drugs and alcohol and making this incredible music that survives the ages. So I guess my answer to you is, unfortunately, yes, it's true. And on the other hand, I think also, you know, music can certainly be made about happy things and about love and about lovely things. There's plenty of music like that as well. But, you know, it's funny, my very first book is this book. And you had mentioned chapbooks earlier. They're basically small books, usually between like uh, 15 and 30 pages or something like that, just small little mini books. 
And they have a long legacy of being printed throughout the centuries and often sold, you know, on the streets of London or whatever, you know, the 19th century, these little tiny chapbooks containing poems or, or whatnot. But this full-length book is about my trauma. It is a trauma memoir. And that's a bit frustrating. Like, I, I had to get it out of me, but I want to write about other things as well. I think trauma is good for writing and good for expression and art in a different way than just writing about the trauma. I think it's good for helping a writer or a creator to have perspective and to have like, it's definitely one form of worldly experience. I mean, another would be a really happy life traveling around the world and meeting all kinds of characters and, you know, whatever. But this is another version of that. I mean, I'm, I have more wisdom and experience than some people one could say maybe not more but I have different wisdom and experience and so I can use that so I'm writing another book right now that's certainly there's trauma in it but it's not directly about my trauma it's about an elder woman and her life and so I'm able I feel like I'm able to take my pain and now map it onto characters and start start building out worlds that don't have to do with me which I'm really excited about I didn't really want to write this book, but I had to write this book, partly for myself as the healing process and partly because, as I've said, so many kids have died since we left that place and so many kids will never have their story told and so many kids are currently getting sent to these places. And so I feel like it'd be immoral if I hadn't focused on it and hadn't made this book and wasn't doing interviews like this one, but I really hope to use my trauma and my pain and my experience differently moving forward as a source of wisdom, a source of experience, a source of perspective that I can apply to other other topics and other characters. When I did my book release in Burlington in September, I read a whole bunch of sections of the book and then I opened it up to Q&A and the room was full and there were just these sort of dinner plate eyes on people who had never heard of these programs or were just astonished. And I fielded a good 30 minutes of questions just about the program and the industry. I didn't want to be the spokesperson. I found myself, you know, in that position and I'm now in that position and I'm like more comfortable with it now, but I hadn't predicted that I would have to be the person who one of the people who, you know, their shtick is I'm this traumatized person by this abusive industry and I'm going to tell you all about it. And the reason you're going to listen to me is that I'm personally traumatized by it. And I have a testimony. Like, I guess I should have known that that would be the case, but I, I guess because I'm a poet, I was like, I'll write this great book of poems (laughs) and just thought more about the poetry side of it when I daydreamed about how it would be in the end when I released the book. So I, I don't identify, I don't want to identify as the victim of this. I am, but that's not something I, I treasure or like cling to, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that came from? There was a, um, There was a weird second self that I had while I was going through all of this as a teenager that could stand back and look at it all and see it as as horrible and see it as something I just had to get through. And I suppose that's, um, you know, therapists might call that dissociation. But I was able to dissociate. I was able to step back from what was happening to me and see it as something that would pass and see it as something that was not all of reality and all of the universe and it didn't define me. There's a poem in the book where I write about this terrible staff member and how I could see him at the time as terrible. And I'll read that in a moment, but I guess my point is that 
there were kids there. I, I don't tout this as some special ability of mine. I just think whatever came together to make me able to dissociate like that or to to step away from what was happening and not be fully immersed in it saved me in some ways. And there were kids there that a lot of them were younger than me, you know, maybe that had something to do with it that weren't able to sort of see that. And that took it, I feel like harder than I took it. I don't know. And then there were also I have to say, kids there that were treated much worse than I was like each individual kid had their own experience. And I lucked out in most of the ways I didn't get a lot of bad punishments. I didn't get a lot of cruelty aimed directly at me. I witnessed a lot of it. But somehow or other, I charmed the staff and they didn't give me a hard time. Whereas, you know, I have a friend who was restricted from smiling, speaking, drawing, laughing, making eye contact with a single human being for three months, for instance. That never happened to me. But when something like that happens to you, you know, there's a certain point where you can no longer dissociate. You can no longer stand apart from it. It's you're immersed in that hell. So I think it's a combination of accident and luck and my art that has helped me to be somebody who's not completely immersed in this trauma. I'm going to read you this poem describing a staff at Ascent, the six-week boot camp. You're on your knees in the snow with what hope you've grown over 16 years, trying to share it with another girl's 13 years worth. The man with something missing has left because the girl couldn't carry her half and collapsed. You have to make her stand so she can help you haul it. Food for 40 children in a metal box slung from a two by four, one end on your shoulder, the other on hers, through a dark half mile in snow above the knees. An hour of falling, cajoling, pleading, holding, hugging, and wiping cakes of snow from your eyes before you arrive to be presented to a silent mass of hungry kids. She's so young, her lips tremble with each name he calls her as he displays the two, quote, disgusting things. And he tries to teach you who you are. Useless victims, pathetic brats, f***ing babies. But you're just old enough to translate. He's teaching you who he is. There are so many other parts of the book that I wanted to have you read, but I don't know how much time we have and how how relevant that would be, considering that we also want to talk about this workshop that you're going to be doing. The workshop won't take that long to describe, so I'm happy to continue talking about this if you have parts you'd like me to address of the book, and then we can wrap up. It's up to you, though. Yeah. Um, the first one on the list is page 37 and 38, where you talk about milk as a metaphor. Yes. And also, I, I want to give you free reign if there's something else that you feel inspired to read and to talk about. No, I'm absolutely happy to read 37 and 38. Okay. All right, page 37. This describes when my parents, um, well, you'll see. No one can say milk is bad. Emerson, K. Brown, morals unsullied by religion. 
wholesome white nectar that reveals universal truth. You've had sex. You're contaminated. Milk can make you hygienic again if it's inserted under the right conditions. With threats in a flowery and gaslit abyss. When your parents visit, they gush. Isn't it beautiful? Milk in the mountain, in the furniture, in the promenade. Milk in the fireplace, in the pond, in the wood. You open your mouth to explain. The milk is a burrito, which I will explain momentarily. The milk is isolation, sleep deprivation. The milk is eyes down while a grown man or woman gets going, gets into the spirit of the thing, slides their shoulders squarely into the screaming, swearing, name-calling, lying, manipulating, and shaming. But your father puts his fingers to your lips. Nothing you could possibly tell us could ever change our minds about any of this. The end of the family. Even the wreckage is gone. So I referenced there a burrito. And unless you've read an earlier poem, that's not really comprehensible. So this is a poem about the burrito. That's from earlier in the book. You only speak when spoken to by the staff. But the English boy speaks at will. He laughs pulls his pants down, and shits in the mess tent. You look at the grain in the rough wooden bench. He kicks as they tackle him to the ground, and all the while, as they swear and shout and he fights, comes his laughter, making ripples in your eyes. They put him in a sleeping bag, wrap a tarp around it, tie it with rope, then leave him on the ground for days, on display, in March, in the mountains, in many feet of snow. They call it a burrito. Let him laugh, they say. Let him wiggle and roll. We were not killed. I am not ungrateful. I am not ungrateful. Now that line, I am not ungrateful, I am not ungrateful, is repeated a few times in this. Yeah. You know, Ray Armentrout gave me my blurb. She was very kind. And she's an incredible poet. And she she writes, it certainly reminds us of the other more famous camps, gulags, and re-education centers we are aware of. And I have a friend whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And she immediately said that it reminded her of the camps. And the thing is, the difference is they were not designed to kill. I mean, there's other differences, but that's the primary one. I personally was not in fear of my life. And, you know, as an adult now, I'm also aware that this was, as I said, a rich person's hell. <laughs> so there's like this creepy privilege of it all. We weren't sent there to be killed. It costs a lot of money. It's an elite form of abuse for the most part. And I was not killed. And I don't want to claim this intense status as a victim of a gulag. It's different. 
And so there's this sense of like shame of like, look, this was bad, but it could have been worse. I'm not ungrateful. And then there's, you know, survivor's guilt as well. So many of my friends are dead and I'm here to tell the story and I'm not ungrateful about that. And I was not put in a burrito. That did not happen to me. And there's a certain sense of like, I must be grateful for my blessings. I must be grateful for my privileges. I didn't get the brunt of it. I was never put in a burrito. I was never told I couldn't laugh or smile for three months. I was never banished from the entire program of people for three months, uh, putting in isolation for three months. I, none of that ever happened to me. I skimmed my way through with only a few light punishments here and there. And so there's just this this sense throughout of like, look, this awful thing happened to me and it could have been so much worse. And, you know, at the time, at the time when I got sent there, I remember focusing on what I was grateful for, which was that they hadn't shaved my head. All I had left was my hair. They made me put it back into a tight bun. But I just remember thinking, that's what I have. I have my hair. It's just trying to find something that was mine or that was me or that I could be grateful for. So, you know, it's it's got many levels to it, that repetition, that chorus that comes a few times through the book. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, there's a handwritten poem at the end. Yeah, that's from when I was actually there. And before you read it, when did you write that? I had gotten through the, the six-week boot camp program, and I had been sent to the two-and-a-half-year facility. And I was probably about four or five months into that two-and-a-half years when I wrote this. Silly little girl doesn't realize her world is being bombed, refuses to accept she is about to die as she breathes in all the little ashes, chokes, but silly little girl stomps her foot and ignores the cries around her, hands grabbing her ankles. Everyone is sinking, but silly little girl won't go down, won't go down. She won't go down, denies the dark green clouds as the air is replaced with nothing. Just closes her eyes. If I can't see them, they can't see me. If I can't see them, they can't see me. If I can't see them, they can't see me. And she believes it all, silly little girl. She really believes it all. Refuses to accept she is about to die. And the silly little girl is the last one to go down. It's a harder one to read. <laughs> It's more raw than anything else, obviously, because it's from the actual experience that I was going through. But it's definitely, I felt like I wanted to end the book on that because it's a testimony to that refusal to immerse myself in what was happening. I just refused to believe that this was all that life was and that this was the answer and that this was good or right or just. I just refused. Part of me stood apart from it all and waited. And the rest of me was being traumatized. But that part of me that little part, that perspective, that stubbornness, that rebellion, whatever you want to call it, dissociation, whatever it was, stood apart. And that poem embodies that spirit. Yeah, it's interesting how dissociation is almost always talked about as a, as a negative thing. And yet, I've also read many accounts where dissociation 
is what actually saved people's lives in situations like yeah. that. Yeah. And I think there's multiple types of dissociation. You know, I think it's a spectrum of it. I don't mm -hmm. know what type mine was, but whatever it was that allowed me to stand. The main way that they did quote unquote therapy there, and by the way, nobody had degrees in therapy or any kind of, uh, they shouldn't have been practicing therapy on kids, but they did this thing from Synanon, from that cult called attack therapy. So there was so much screaming, so much name calling, so much yelling. And so in those moments, I mean, you, you could walk on the campus on, a, on any given day and hear screams from across the campus. It was such a brutal place. And it was in those moments that I just could, I didn't have to be completely there. I was partly gone, you know, looking ahead to my life and hoping for more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being aware of, of a bit of a light at, at the end of pretty distant tunnel. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this workshop that you're going to be doing. Sure. So I'm doing a workshop at the Hummingbird Center for Common Ground, which is a pretty new um, center. My friend Suzanne Richmond runs it down in Berlin, Vermont. It's a wonderful space. And I've mentioned in this interview my background in visual arts, my background as a singer-songwriter. I was also a composer and an arranger. And I'm a poet and I'm a writer and I'm an educator. I'm kind of a one woman band. And so I'm leading this workshop that draws together all the stuff I've learned from all these different artistic disciplines. For fostering engagement, what I mean by that is simply we make work. Let's say we make a song or we make a painting or we make a poem. And a lot of times we don't make it for an audience and that's completely fine. But for those of us who are making work and we want to engage with our viewers, our listeners, our readers, we want to we want to really heighten the connection with them. That's what this workshop is about. It's about all the tips and tricks I've picked up from the music world, the performance world. I've done tons of improvisation, not comedic, but musical improvisation and writing improv. I've done all this wacky stuff and these really fun things. And I've learned tips and tricks from each of them. So it's just this fun workshop where we'll be anybody who, who makes creative work for others to view or encounter. So if you're a singer-songwriter, if you're an artist, anyone who's making something for other people to digest or encounter might benefit from this. I'll just be teaching really exciting, fun tips and tricks from each discipline for how to better connect to an audience and turns an encounter or a person encountering your artwork turn them from an audience into a sort of conversation partner. So it's going to be on Saturday, September 30th from 1030 to 330. And I'll also just mention that I do online Zoom workshops. And one in particular is really relevant to this interview. I do a repeated workshop. I've given it, this will be the sixth time. I think it's been very popular, basically about how I wrote this book. And the next one coming up is Wednesday, September 20th. I'll be going through how I wrote a book about my trauma, like the actual practical steps that I took to face it, to get myself to work on it, to edit it. It doesn't involve any triggering material. It's just the process. I'm very practical and process oriented. So my teaching tends to involve really fun and nerdy poetry charts and process charts and very practical things and tools that you can leave my workshops feeling like you actually have 
a bigger toolkit for what you want to do. It's not abstractions. It's not, it's not sort of self introspection focused teachings. It's very much the craft. So yeah, I'll have that one in-person one on September 30th. And then I have a Zoom one about how to write about a difficult past on September 20th. And all of this is on my website, lullabiesalarms.com, which just launched yesterday, drawing all this into one place, lullabiesalarms.com. Could you give us an example or two of the engagement tools that you'll be sharing? Sure. So for instance, as a singer songwriter, the songs that I performed were very much part of, I mean, that's what the audience came to see. They came to see the songs, but the space in between the songs where I cracked jokes and made them laugh and had stage banter. That's a wonderful thing that you can, that's a tool that you can use with other artwork. That was half of the performance. Half of the performance was the actual songs that I played and that they listened to. And the other half was that engagement, those jokes, that stage banter. So how can you bring that into your painting? How can you bring an element of humor into your work, into your paintings, into your songs, into your poetry? Um, humor is a wonderful way to engage with an encounterer. I call encounterers just anyone interacting with your artwork. So that would be one, one quick and easy example. Another is from the visual art world, this idea of negative space. When you're a visual artist and you're working with a painting, there's the subject that you're painting, and then there's the space around the subject. And both of those elements are really important for your work, for the painting and for the form of it and, and how it strikes the viewer. And so how can you use that idea of negative space in your writing or in your songs? A lot of times that can take the shape of things that you omit or pauses or literal white space on the page to let the reader take a breath and contemplate what they've just read. Or you can use the actual shape of the words on the page to build something with the white space around the, the words on the page using a sort of graphic poem approach. So yeah, that would be two quick examples. And so the workshop will focus on these examples and then we'll have opportunities to sort of make something while you're there. And we'll go through a whole bunch, a whole spectrum of these and you'll leave with some great tools and some great actual charts, physical charts that you can refer back to as ways to sort of freshen up this connection between you and your encounterer. And your website, again, where people can find out more about all of this? Yeah, it's lullabies alarms.com it comes from my monthly newsletter is called lullabies and alarms and it's just this idea that poetry is a lullaby it can soothe in times of need if someone you know if you're going through grief a poem is often what you turn to when covid descended i saw a lot of people sharing poems on social media so poetry is the soothing lullaby and poetry is something that can wake us up it can be a call to action you know, poetry can address injustice and can educate about injustice and can be a cry against injustice or oppression. And so that's the name of my newsletter, Lullabies and Alarms, and the website where I draw together all of my teachings and my teaching offerings is lullabiesalarms.com. Elizabeth Blair is a poet, editor, educator, and artist. Elizabeth, Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great to talk with you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege. And thank you for reading my book so closely and asking such wonderful questions. Thank you so much and be well. Be well to you too. Thank you.
believe you got to use all of your forces in this life you got to use all of your senses and in this life you got to use all of your forces and in this life you got to use all of your senses it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening if you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again you can find this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com wgdr and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other A fabulous blue. A fabulous blue.
so blue, there are no handles. Oh, 